So the book of Revelation is obviously a hot topic right now, and sometimes for the wrong reason. Uh, the book of Revelation is an extremely important book. There are three main views on the book of Revelation. We'll touch some more on this as we go along. Uh, one view is completely ridiculous, and that is no one understands the book of Revelation. Uh, that's a very pathetic attitude to something that God brought to us through the sufferings of John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. The very name of the book, Revelation, means the unveiling or the revealing. So the whole purpose of the book is to give us understanding. So we discount that one. Uh, the second uh, popular perspective is what's called the preterist position. The preterist position believes that John was writing all about what was going to happen in 70 AD. The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, basically the uh, cessation of the nation of Israel. There's a real big problem with that one, actually a lot of problems, but the real big problem is that John tells us that he's writing this while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, which didn't happen until about 90 AD. So somehow he's supposed to be writing about things that happened 20 years earlier as if they haven't happened yet. So that's a real problem. Uh, we're going to take uh, the approach that I believe to be the biblical approach, and that is that the book gives us its own outline. And we're going to follow the outline that John gives us in the book. And there's a couple of pages here of just introductory material, and I'm not going to uh, spend time on all of it uh, because you have it there in your notes. But I do think an introduction to the book is important. So if you will, just follow along with me. The historical background, the time of writing, is probably around 96 A.D. John is in exile uh, on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, he was exiled by Domitian. Domitian wasn't even around in 70 A.D., so again, the preterist position is kind of shot down. Written from the Isle of Patmos, uh, some of you, if you've been to the Holy Land uh, or the, uh, we, we did a tour called The Footsteps of Paul, uh, where we followed Paul through the seven churches of Asia, and they take you to the Isle of Patmos, to the grotto that they believe was the place that he was staying may or may not be, uh, but a very remote at that time, isolated place. At that time, it was a slave camp. Uh, basically, it was uh, a place where they took slaves to mine salt and to cut stone. The author, of course, is the Apostle John, uh, same author of the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John. Uh, John, of course, after the destruction of Jerusalem, went to Asia, to Ephesus, and he was uh, busy there among the seven churches that are going to be mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 as kind of a circuit ministry. Uh, and he carried that base of operations on from Ephesus. The recipients of the book, John, uh, is commanded to send the original letter to the seven churches of Asia. So the book of Revelation is really written to the church. Although much of it has to do with future things, uh, it was for the church to know and understand. The theme of the book, or the purpose of the writing of the book, is really twofold. First, to reveal Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of St. John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And basically what it reveals him as is the uh, author of human history and the one who is going to accomplish all that is yet to come 
Uh, he is the one, the only one who has the right, the only one who is worthy to open the seven seals that we're going to see later on in the book. And then, of course, not only to reveal Christ, but to reveal to his servants the course of history from 96 A.D. until the Millennial Kingdom. So basically what we have in this book is we start from the time of John in 96 A.D., we're going all the way into the future to the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. There are some suggestions for study toward the bottom of your page. It's important that we understand dispensations. In other words, we need to understand that God deals with human beings according to their place in history, and we recognize that we have what we call progressive revelation. People in the time of Abraham didn't know what people in the time of David knew. People in the time of David didn't know what people in the time of Isaiah knew because God was slowly revealing his plan and his purpose according to the needs of his people. So we have to understand that if, you, if I had the whiteboard, I would draw you the old timeline that is human history. So from the beginning to the ending of history, you have this paragraph that we call time between the eternities, eternity past and eternity future. Right in the middle of that, we put the cross of Christ and just the recognition that that changed history requires a dispensational understanding. If you even use the terms Old Testament, New Testament, you're talking in dispensational terms. There are a lot of people who uh, have given the idea of dispensations a bad name, and there are people who have abused the idea of dispensations. But the primary point that we're making is that when Christ accomplished his work on the cross and died and sacrificed himself for the salvation of all mankind, we move from the old covenant into the new covenant, as he said to the disciples in the upper room, and I'm sure they had no understanding what was going on. This bread is my body given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, everything was going to change. And that requires a recognition that God's plan, it's not that God's plan changes, it's that God's plan is progressing. History is going somewhere. God has a plan for human history. And it's kind of difficult for us sometimes, particularly living through these last three years, we look at the world and it's like the world has gone crazy. But everything is working toward the grand finale of the plan of God that he designed before the world began. The book of Revelation is a book of signs. Uh, you'll notice that it says in verse 1, the re excuse me, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And we say shortly, and we say, well, it hasn't all happened yet, but remember that it was starting from the time of John working forward. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The word sign or signified is actually a favorite word of John. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that there are eight signs in the Gospel of John. Unfortunately, many people only identify seven of the signs. The first sign was what? The water to wine. Turning water to wine in John chapter 2. And then you have the other signs that follow. Unfortunately, they uh, oftentimes include seven signs and leave out the greatest, which is the eighth sign, which is the resurrection. Mm -hmm. 
And Jesus mentioned that in John chapter 2 when they said, what sign do you show that you have the authority to do these things? And He said, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. So that sign is fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. Well, in the same way, going through the book of Revelation, we're going to have many signs. And these signs are very important. You have several of them mentioned under uh, this heading. The seven lampstands, the seven stars, the sharp two-edged sword, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars, the red dragon in Revelation 12, the seven heads and ten horns of Revelation 12, 3, and the great harlot of Revelation 17. These are things that were revealed to John not in words but in pictures. In other words, he saw, and he emphasizes all the way through the book, I saw. So he was actually watching a panoramic view of these things as they're introduced and as they're explained. Why is that important? Because the word sign refers to a picture or uh, visible evidence with spiritual significance. The signs that Jesus worked in John were things people could see. If he heals a blind man, if he raises the dead, whatever he did uh, in his dealing with the people, those were f physical things, visible things that people could see. But unfortunately, like parables, they often never got to the deeper meaning. Signs and parables are very similar in that they present a physical picture or physical evidence of a spiritual reality. So we're going to see a lot of signs as we go through and we'll identify them as we go. One thing I'll point out about signs. A lot of people try to interpret the signs of Revelation in light of what they appear to mean today. That's the wrong way to go about it. Because every one of the signs he gives us is going to relate to something in here. So if you really want to understand Revelation, you have to start in Genesis. And you have to work your way through the Bible. Revelation is kind of a grand summary of the whole of the Bible. And these signs all come from different places uh, in the rest of Scripture. It's important also to notice, if you'll read with me Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. This is the first of seven blessings pronounced on you and I by the book of Revelation. In other words, I'm reading it to you. Generally, in the time John wrote it, people were not literate. If they were, they didn't have their own copy of the Bible, and so they would gather together in the local church, which met in a home, just like we're doing, and someone would read the letters to them. And they would hear. And the idea of hearing means to hear with understanding. In other words, you're not just listening to the words that are being said, but you're grasping the contents that are being communicated. And then those who keep the things that are written. And so we're going to see next week as we look at the seven churches of Asia, there's a lot of correction. You know, there's an idea today that is very common, uh, very popular in the church that if you're really a Christian, if you're a true Christian, you will never stray from the path. 
Well, it's very interesting that when John writes to the seven churches, only two of the seven are without rebuke. All of the others are rebuked for things they're doing wrong, and some of them are in gross violation of the Word of God. So it's important for us to understand Christians can stray, Christians can be deceived. If we're honest, we all know that just from our own life. So the blessings of Revelation, I want you to see here at the bottom of page 2. The blessing for teaching, studying, obeying in chapter 1, verse 3. And then there is a blessing to martyrs. We haven't hit that one yet, but there will be those in the tribulation period, Revelation 14, 13. In Revelation 16, 15, a blessing to those who are awake and keeping their robes pure. In other words, they're spiritually vigilant. They're alert to their own Christian life. They're alert to what the Word of God says and how it's to apply in their life. Revelation 19.9, blessing to those who are invited to the marriage feast. So I have an invitation to you. You're all invited. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're all invited to the wedding feast. No. Wrong. You're not one of the invitees. I hate to tell you. No, I don't hate to tell you. I'm thrilled to tell you. Why is that? Because we're the bride. The bride doesn't get an invitation to the wedding. This is referring to those who are called the friends of the bridegroom, which refers to all the Old Testament saints. John called himself a friend of the bridegroom, identifying himself not as the bride, but as a friend, one who would be invited. All of the saints of the tribulation period, they are all going to be invited, and we are the guest of honor, as it were. Next, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we have uh, then blessing uh, in Revelation 26 to those in the first resurrection. That will, of course, include us. There are essentially two resurrections. The first resurrection comes in stages. We don't have time to go into this, but if you want to study in, Revelation, or in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, well, just turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Since I mentioned it, we might as well see it. Starting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. You'll remember this is a central point of Paul's gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just like with the harvest festivals of the Jews, they would bring in their first fruits, the best of their offering, and Christ is that first fruit offering. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. How many are in Adam? Everyone. All. Everyone. Romans 5, 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. So in Adam all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. How many are in Christ? All, all who believe. That's the important criteria. But then he says in verse 23, but each one in his own order. The word order in the Greek is takis, and it refers to a military battalion or platoon or 
regiment, however you want to look at it, it's talking about a specific group. So each in his own order. Afterward, those, uh, sorry, each in his own order. First, Christ the first fruit. So there's the first resurrection. The first of the first resurrection, if you will. Christ the first fruit. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, think for a minute. What is his coming? Rapture. Rapture? Is he coming at the rapture? No. Right? He's coming. We're going to meet him in the air, right? Is he coming again at the second coming? Yes. Yep. So those that is coming involves two parts. Resurrection at the rapture of church-age saints. Not Old Testament saints. Tribulation saints haven't died yet. Church-age saints. Those who are, Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ. Very important, unique term in the New Testament. Then, at his second advent, you have the resurrection of all those who have died during the tribulation period, of which there will be multitudes. So those who are Christ at his coming, A and B. And then comes the end. Uh, many, and I'm included in this, takes the end to actually be at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, there will be a need for a resurrection, whether people are still living or whether they've died. Uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be that transformation or that resurrection when he delivers the kingdom to, the God, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. By the way, I don't know if any of you uh, heard this news. I've mentioned before my cousin Ken, who's worked extensively in India building churches. Uh, I think he has worked to build over 150 churches in India. He died about, what, two weeks ago. I saw him uh, when we went up to Idaho. I saw him on our way up. I saw him on our way back. I think we both realized we were not going to see each other again. Uh, he was ready. Uh, he was eager. Uh, unfortunately, his family wasn't. Uh, he leaves behind, obviously, a wife and children and grandchildren. So uh, if you think of it, pray for Ken's family. Um, but he is thrilled to be in the presence of the Lord. So coming back then to the book of Revelation, we've got the resurrection, the first resurrection. By the way, what is the second resurrection? We'll get to this in Revelation 20. It's the resurrection of all unbelievers. Did you know unbelievers are going to be resurrected? Remember Jesus talked about it in John chapter 5, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. They're going to receive a resurrection body which they will take into the eternal lake of fire. It'll be a body that cannot be consumed and that will be the body that they will be in for the duration. And then the final blessing, the blessing to those in the tribulation who apply the doctrines of this book, Revelation 22 and verse 7. So you can look those verses up, and I'm sure it'll be very instructive to you uh, just to go back through this sometime while you're able during the week. The threefold outline of the book. 
And we're going to go back through chapter 1, but I want to just get to the outline. Revelation 1, verse 19. In Revelation 1, 19, notice that he says, write, this is Jesus, by the way, talking to John, write the things that you have seen. That's point one. And the things which are, point two, and the things that shall take place after this or after these things. If you look through the book of Revelation, you'll find that the phrase after these things is repeated over and over and over. And why is that? I think John is emphasizing to us that he is giving us an orderly development of how things are going to happen. Some of it's difficult to understand. Some of it we probably can't fully grasp. But he wants us to understand that what is coming during the seven years of tribulation is going to be a very orderly, systematic judgment of God on the earth. And so you'll read again and again, after these things I saw, after these things I saw. So if we take this threefold outline, write the things that you have seen, the word seen is past tense, right? So what has John seen in the past in Revelation chapter 1? The vision of Christ. He's recorded that for us. And the things which are... Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the seven churches of Asia which were existing at that time and were churches that John had an extensive ministry to before uh, he had been exiled. And the things that will take place after this, and that's chapters 4 through 22. So he really gives us his own outline. And if we just follow that outline, uh, it'll save us from a lot of confusion. In chapters 3 and 4, we have the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the church in heaven. There are certain things that are said that tell us that that can only be the church in heaven, which fits with our understanding of the rapture of the church because what do we read in Revelation 4.1? I heard a voice saying, come up here. And then we read chapter 4 and 5, and we see certain things that identify the people that we see there as members of the church. Then in chapter 6 through chapter 19, we have the tribulation period itself. It's very interesting to notice. The word church occurs 19 times in the first three chapters. It does not occur from chapter 6 through chapter 19, the section that deals with the tribulation period. Instead, who do we read about? The nation of Israel. Remember that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, blindness in part has happened to Israel because the question would come up, if God is faithful to his promises, what about the nation of Israel? Is God finished with the nation of Israel? And there's an attitude today, it's actually called replacement theology, that says the church took the place of Israel. No, no. God is not done with Israel. Their time is yet coming. And that's going to be the tribulation period. So in chapter 6 through 19, we read about Israel, we read about the tribes, we read about Jerusalem. The whole focus goes back to the promised land. And then you can read the rest of the chapter headings and what they're about. But what I'd like to do now is just take a quick overview 
of chapter 1. So let's go back to the beginning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God gave the revelation to Jesus Christ to show his servants things that must shortly take place. And he, Jesus, sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So this book has been passed down from the Father to the Son, from the Son to an angel, from an angel to John, who bore witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and those that hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. Because the book of Revelation deals with everything from the time of John until the end of the kingdom, no matter where you live in that time, the time is near. Because whatever is next to come is going to come. And it's going to come quickly. <clears throat> we notice several purposes behind the book. Uh, again, you've got them all in your notes. I do all your work for you, but that doesn't excuse you. You need to go over them. You need to read them, look up passages, and study them. That's why they're there. Purpose of the book, number one, to reveal Jesus Christ. Number two, to reveal the course of history. Number three, to finish John's testimony. This was the last book that he wrote. Number four, to bless those who study the book. And not only study, but obey the book. John identifies himself now in verse four and following. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is a typical opening of a letter in the ancient world. Paul writes and he says, Paul to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. That's You identified yourself first and then identified who you're writing to. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Paul's typical greeting was grace and peace. John apparently somewhere along the line picked this up. Uh, I will tell you that it's very interesting since I'm right, not, right, right now studying in First and Second Timothy and Titus that Paul changes his greeting. And I find it very interesting because those are possibly his last three letters. He says grace, mercy, and peace. And I find it very interesting that toward the end of Paul's life, he begins to place a big emphasis on the word mercy. Just as a simple explanation, mercy and grace are two sides of a coin. Grace supplies us everything we don't deserve. Mercy takes away from us everything we do deserve. That's just a simple way of explaining it. There's much more in it because mercy has the whole idea of loving kindness, uh, long-suffering, and so on and so forth. But that at least gives us kind of an idea. And I find it interesting because when we get to Re uh, Romans chapter 12, you'll remember Paul's appeal as he gets into the practical section of Romans. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by what? The mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Stop and think, and you probably have never thought of this before, where does Paul mention mercies in the book of Romans? He's saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies, in other words, the mercies that I've been talking about, I'm beseeching you on the basis of those mercies to present your body a living sacrifice. 
You know, the interesting thing, he never mentions mercy in Romans until Romans 9, 10, and 11. The section dealing with the nation of Israel. If God can be so faithful and so merciful to a people who have been so rebellious, how can we not present ourselves on the basis of those same mercies? Because we're not all that different, are we? We have our own faults and flaws and failures and acts of disobedience and thoughts and words and so on and so forth. Those mercies that are so obvious to us in God's dealing with the children of Israel are the same mercies available to us. Therefore, they should compel us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. So I think that's so interesting. So grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What do those three things tell us? Uh, even bigger. He's infinite and eternal. What does Paul tell us in Timothy? Who alone has immortality. He who brought life and immortality to life, to light through the gospel. So, from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah 11 and verse 2, Isaiah sees the spirits of God having seven characteristics. Uh, I'll let you go back to that on your own. Uh, he says the spirit of God, the spirit of peace, the spirit of this and that, and so on. So essentially he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So the interesting thing to me at this point that's, by the way, Isaiah 11, 2, is that in the first four verses, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. And they're all sending greetings to us. They're all working for our spiritual well-being. Very interesting. And then verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood talking about the finished work of Christ on the cross, the one who provided for us our so great salvation. Verse 6, this should excite us, and has made us kings and priests. You know, in all the Old Testament, you read of kings and you read of priests and you read of prophets, but you never read of all of them together. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and here we're told he has made us kings and priests. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, he has made us ambassadors of Christ, that we are ministers of reconciliation. So as Doug prayed at the beginning of class, when we witness to friends, family, and neighbors, what are we doing? We're actually fulfilling a prophetic office. Not that we're having visions or seeing the future. The word prophet can speak of one who foretells the future or one who simply proclaims God's word. So how astounding each and every one of us in all of our commonality and brokenness and frailty and everything else is seen in heaven as a royal priest. And you can go to 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, where Peter reminds us that we are a royal priesthood. There was no royal priesthood in the Old Testament with one exception. 
Who was that? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. The king priest. So we're on a par with him. How does that make you feel tonight? Either overwhelmed or a little bit frightened maybe. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. I don't know about you, but I long for it more and pray for it more every day. He is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. What coming is he talking about? Rapture or second coming? That's true, but ask yourself the question, at the rapture, will every eye see him? I'm hoping so. No, not unbelievers. It's going to be a secret departure. They will not see him. We will simply be gone. So we know we're talking here about the second coming. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now Jesus enters in and speaks, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Go back as far as you want. You know, there are seven beginnings in the Bible. You ever notice that? You might look at this sometime. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of creation. I can't recite all these off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but there are seven of them. So we have the beginning of creation. Then we begin in the book of John, and it says, in the beginning was the Word. What beginning is he talking about there? Far back as you want to go. Go as far back as you want into eternity past, and whatever beginning you start at, he was there. That's the one who was. So that's another beginning. And then John in 1 John talks about that which you heard from the beginning. You might remember that in the Gospel of Mark, it, it starts out the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's a different beginning. And then John also talks um, somewhere, and I can't remember the exact reference, but he talks about uh, the beginning of our faith. So that's the beginning of our spiritual life. Um, if you're seriously interested, I could look these up for you and bring them next time. But there are seven different beginnings that are mentioned uh, throughout the New Testament. And here we have the beginning. That's the beginning of John chapter 1, the beginning where the Word was. I am the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. What an amazing statement of His dignity and glory and majesty. <clears throat> In verse 9, John begins to describe for his congregations the conditions of his vision. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm in it with you. We're all in this together as children of God. I was on the island that is called Patmos, off the coast of Turkey, as I mentioned earlier, 
for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, under persecution, under dominion. John was having too much effect, just like Paul was earlier. They got rid of Paul by executing him outside Rome. Domitian decided, no, if I kill him, it's only because they finally began to realize every time they kill Christians, more of them pop up. So I'll just shut him away somewhere and, and shut him up. So he put him on the Isle of Patmos because of his effective ministry. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What do you think he means, I was in the Spirit? Anyone? What's it mean to be in the Spirit? Okay, the idea is, we're told, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. John refers to it in a very simple term in 1 John, as if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another. So John here is in fellowship with God. He is filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, what day was that? Sunday. The early church worshipped on Sunday. By the way, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Remember that the Sabbath is a sign. Study your Old Testament, particularly Exodus 30, I believe. The Sabbath, God says, is a sign between me and the nation of Israel. It was the sign of the Old Covenant. Every covenant has a sign. What is the sign of the New Covenant? If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So it's the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John says, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, notice what you see, because all of this was visual to John. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. By the way, as we'll find next week, each one of those names has a translation. <coughs> You would, you would easily figure out Philadelphia. What is Philadelphia? Phileo, philos, is love. Adelphos is brother. Philadelphos, brotherly love. Okay, well, each one of these has a name, and the name identifies the character of the church. It's very, very fascinating how these names were given to those cities just so that they would reflect those churches at the right time in history. And then John puts them in a particular order, beginning with Ephesus, so that he can reveal to us actually the progress of the church through the ages. I don't think anyone would question that we're living in the Laodicean age the lukewarm church. We'll see that next week because next week we're going to blitz our way through chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
What would you do if you heard the voice of a trumpet behind you? You'd do what John did, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, the symbolism, of course, is I've already given you in that, those points, uh, but the seven golden lampstands are pictures of the churches. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, the church being a lampstand because it is not a lamp under a basket, but a light to the world, that is what we are to be. One like the Son of Man. Why would John say one like the Son of Man? Well, he knew the Son of Man pretty good, didn't he? While Christ was on this earth, who was the closest disciple to him? John. John knew him better than anyone else. The disciple, he says, that Jesus loved. But he said, when I turned around and looked at him, he didn't look like I remembered him. I saw one like the Son of Man. This also causes us to shoot back to Daniel chapter 7, where you'll remember Daniel saw the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, that was God the Father, and one approached him like unto the Son of Man, a picture of Jesus Christ clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, it's very interesting in the ancient world, and this is still true today, uh, even in martial arts. Uh, in some martial arts, the higher your rank, the wider your belt. If you have a belt from your waist to your chest, I actually was uh, asked to offer up a prayer at a Taekwondo championship. There were thousands of people there and they asked me if I would do a prayer my instructor knew that I was a Christian so I prayed and I had seven Korean masters sitting at a table in front of me none of them believers I mean these guys are like seven eighth degree masters sitting there very stoic and solemn and so I prayed and I said I dedicate this competition to the Lord Jesus Christ who holds the highest rank of anyone in history they might not have liked it, but it was true. Yeah. <laughs> Up to the chest, not just with a belt, a golden band. So this, of course, speaks of his deity, his authority, and so on and so forth. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. What do we always think of in Scripture when we see white? Purity, Purity holiness, the holiness of God. So here is his holiness and his eyes were a flame of fire. Now, if Jesus were to walk into this room and you looked at him and his eyes were flaming fire, how would you feel? I, I would feel a little bit... No, I wouldn't feel a little bit. I would be terrified. The flaming eyes speak of judgment. He is coming to judge. Now, those who belong to him and those who walk in fellowship with him have nothing to fear. But we probably all have a little bit to fear, right? Yeah. Of course. His eyes were a flame of fire and notice his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. I won't take time to go into all the detail, but if you go back into the Old Testament, sorry? Go back into the book of Daniel and the whole idea of the burnished bronze was the idea again of judgment, that which is purified through fire. 
You'll remember in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks to us about the fact that our faith being as precious, more precious than gold, though it's tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our faith has to go through the refining furnace just like gold or here as burnished bronze or brass. His voice was the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever gone to, um, what's the, what's the, uh, sorry? Niagara there you go, Niagara, <laughs> I couldn't think of the name of it. If you've been to Niagara, you know what the sound, or if you go to Africa and you go to Victoria Falls, right. it's just like thunder. It's just, you know, you can feel the pulse of that water as it's going over the edge. And so this is his voice the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The sword here is not the typical um, Roman short sword. It's a romphia. There are two kinds of swords that are mentioned in Scripture. The Roman short sword, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. That's the Roman short sword. It was basically measured from the elbow to the fingertip, called the machaira. Uh, the one that's mentioned here is the romphia. It was the broadsword. Huge, kind of like uh, if you've seen Braveheart. I've actually seen Braveheart's sword. It's in the monument in Scotland. Um, and it stands about this high, but from what I've been told when they found it, it was actually broken and they welded it together, but there was a section that was missing, so it was probably like six, six and a half feet. So William Wallace was a big, stout guy, obviously. All right, and so his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's what he would say to you and I were he to walk into this room. Do not be afraid. We have nothing to fear from our Savior. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Now here he's speaking, of course, of his humanity. I have the keys of hell and death. Why the keys of hell and death? He can open to you the keys of death and set you free, or He can take the keys to hell and lock you in. The power of life and death, basically. Write the things that you have seen, the things that are, the things that will take place after this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, some of you were wondering why I didn't interpret seven stars for you, but I thought I'd let John do it. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now the word angel means messenger. So I take the angel of the seven churches to be the pastor of the church, the messenger in that church. So the seven stars are the messengers of the churches. The seven lampstands that you saw are the seven churches. So he's made this first part very easy for us because he's explained the meaning of the signs that he saw. 
He'll begin in chapter 2 to the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus. It's very interesting to me. The church of Ephesus had a glorious beginning. Uh, You'll remember Paul in Acts chapter 20 met with the elders from the church of Ephesus, but you'll remember he gave them a warning. He says, from among yourselves, savage wolves will rise up and will destroy many. When you get to the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, Timothy was pastoring in the church of Ephesus, and what does Paul warn him about constantly? Men who have departed from the faith, men who are promoting themselves, trying to make money from the ministry, leading people astray, so on and so forth. So his prophecy in Acts 20 is fulfilled by 1 and 2 Timothy, and then you get all the way down to the... Uh, church of Ephesus here in chapter 2 and he has some real rebuke for them by the way Ephesus means beloved to the church that is beloved he's going to write and that's where we're going to pick up next week and next week we'll cover chapter 2 and 3 obviously kind of have to hurry through it but that'll at least get us up to the tribulation portion and maybe I can Uh, just go ahead a little bit and point out a few things from chapter 6 to 19 or chapter 4 to 19 actually. Just touch on a few highlights through and then when we come back, we'll be back into it. All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the faithfulness of men like John. We know, Father, that they were men with uh, weaknesses and frailties like all of us. And yet, Father, what devotion, what dedication, what commitment, what what a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, and how rich we are because of all that they have done. So, Father, as we uh, begin to enter into this book of Revelation, I do pray that you'll just help us to stand back and allow your word to speak to us and allow God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see and review things that we have known before, but also, of course, to learn and see and understand new truths, new doctrines, new practices of obedience and faithfulness that can challenge us in the time in which we live. We realize as we look toward the future that this world seems to be hurtling in the direction of the tribulation period. So how important it is that we understand this book and know and apply it to our lives, and especially that we see that nearness of the coming of our Lord as a challenge to do everything we can to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Help us be faithful in that regard. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there you have it. Quick opening and introduction. I think that's off, I'm not sure. Wasn't John also boiled in oil? That's 